29% Equal is a podcast celebrating significant women who have shaped how we practice architecture today. Produced by me, Sarah Ackland. I'm a practicing architect and PhD researcher studying gendered bodies in public space. So why 29% Equal? Well, the last formal survey undertaken by the ARB, or the Architects Registration Board, was in 2019. This revealed that only 29% of qualified architects are female identifying. Women are routinely excluded from the architecture profession, from the books we read and even the references and precedents that we study at university. In an effort to eliminate this erasure of women, I have asked a young architect, designer, artist or activist from Park W and some of their friends to have a discussion with a woman they feel deserves recognition, or perhaps more recognition. We ask these amazing women about their defining moments, their activism, who inspires them, the advice that they would give to their younger selves, and finally, what a more equitable city might look like. Hi, and welcome back to 29% Equal in conversation with Park W. In today's episode, Zoe Berman, the founder and chair of Park W Collective and director of Studio B, speaks with the groundbreaking Justine Clark and Naomi Steed, the president and vice president of the Australian-based Parlour. In this episode, they discuss how the organisation grew from a research project and worked tirelessly to prove that women's inability to stay in the profession of architecture was not their fault. We discuss how campaign groups can work together and reflect on Parlour's impressive journey so far. From hanging out and data collection to the creation of the Parlour Guides, which is a must-read for all those hoping to support diversity, these women really have paved the way for change for women in architecture. This podcast has been created with thanks to the RIBA Research Fund and supported by Katie Lloyd-Thomas of Newcastle University. Here's Zoe and Parla. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Sarah. So I wondered if we might just start off with some of the sort of the groundwork around your organisation and when it was set up, what you are, and then maybe from there flow into why you, why you established Parla, sort of particularly for those people who maybe aren't aware of your amazing work to give a bit of an introduction to, to, to what, you, what you do. The project, we never, we never really conceived of Parla to begin with. It wasn't something that we kind of just invented from scratch. It was, it was an outcome of a research project, which was a, a project in Australia, an academic research project funded by the Australian Research Council, which was about equity and diversity in the Australian architecture profession. And that was following on some earlier work that had also been done by Paula Whitman on women in architecture, why do women leave architecture? There'd been a lot of work that had been happening, but actually not for quite some time. There'd been a sort of strange silence throughout the 80s, or no, throughout the 90s, I should say. And we just thought, well, why has this fallen? Why has this question sort of fallen into abeyance? It was very strange. So anyway, it was a big project. It was national. It had a number of partners, including the Australian Institute of Architects. And we, were, I guess what we were trying to do was really get to the bottom of this question of what, you know, was there a problem with gender equity in the Australian architecture profession? Because many people believed there was, but we simply didn't have enough data to say whether that was the case or not. And then out of that research project grew Parler, and here's where I throw to Justine. <laughs> and Parler kind of grew, uh, emerged slowly. So we didn't begin as an organisation. We began because Naomi rang me up one day and said, oh, we think the research project needs a website. People keep asking what we're doing. 
do you want to do that? And I was an editor without a magazine. I'd just left my previous job. So I said, sure. I also, I think, knew that if the website was to have a kind of life, it needed to have more con contributors than simply the researchers because it's, they had other kinds of obligations for publishing. So I started with, this is probably too much detail, but I started with a couple of essays that had been written by people involved in the project and sent them to a whole lot of practitioners I knew and said, can you have a look at these, reflect on them and write a kind of response based on your own experience. So we had the sort of beginnings of some data, we had some beginning speculation. This was just a year into the research project and we got a whole lot of great material back. So it, just, it was always positioned as a kind of space of encounter and a space of exchange between the broader professional community and the research team. It wasn't a matter of the research team kind of telling people it was a, it was always this two-way exchange and because we set up a year into the a three-year research project it also became a place you know we started gathering more material through the website and through the activity but we weren't we weren't an organization we were a you know a website associated with the research project people thought we were an organization so it's always it's always been a little bit unclear then when that project finished I think we we kind of like well you know do we do we put it to sleep do we keep it going? We spent a lot of time thinking about that. We did some surveys of people and there was seemed, you know, there was a strong demand to keep going. So in 2015, we became a incorporated association. And because the research funding had finished, it also meant that we could raise funds ourselves. And so we set up sponsorship programs, we did crowdfunding, and it's kind of grown from there. And Naomi and I think both are fairly opportunistic we kind of grab, you know, we see an opportunity and we grab it. It does mean we try to do far too much and that we um, don't always manage to complete everything. <laughs> but we have managed to, yeah, it's, it's been quite responsive and quite, yeah, we've taken opportunities as we find them. And the organisation, as I was saying to you before, we're now thinking about, well, looking at becoming a more formalised membership organisation. So it's been a kind of evolution over time as opportunities come along so we, we you know with COVID we we didn't do anything we meant to last year but we did a whole lot of other stuff so it is a quite agile one might say in contemporary jargon organization and was there a particular moment or a campaign a project that you were working on that was quite defining for for you both in really feeling that Parler was as a as a project as a study that this was something that really had legs and was actually becoming maybe more substantial than perhaps you had initially anticipated I mean Naomi you talked about the way in which you hadn't necessarily planned Parler per se and that it kind of was something that came about and was there was there a real moment which you could kind of pinpoint that you said that you might say, wow, this is really that this is really going somewhere and there's an appetite for this in a way in which we possibly hadn't necessarily predicted? Well, I would say actually as soon as we launched the website, it just kind of went crazy. So we got a we got a huge amount of response very quickly. We also got people contacting us from all over the world who'd been sort of Googling around and found us. So, you know, Rosa Sheen, who set up Equity by Design, got in touch. 
before before equity by design existed, asking what we did and how we did it. We sent a whole lot of stuff. But it, it took off really quickly and it took off internationally very quickly. So I think the, for me, that was, it was right from the beginning. It was like, oh my goodness, what have we done? Mm. People were saying at last, at last, you know, at last there is a kind of a space for me to, to share my story and to feel like I belong and, you know, a safe space also for women. And I mean that virtually, of course, although often we meet in real time, in real life, in actual spaces as well. But it was... There was really this sense also that suddenly people were able to think that these issues really were systematic and structural, and it wasn't just a personal failing. And that was very moving, I must say, because it just became so clear that there were so many people who'd thought that their inability to stay in the architecture profession was their own fault, which it clearly was not. And then suddenly became, I think those people may have found some kind of, I hope they found some kind of comfort in the knowledge that that was not the case. So one of the first things we did was we ran a big survey called Where Do All the Women Go? And that we got a huge amount of comment back through that and privately of people saying, I thought it was just me. Thank God I'm not alone. That was very, very strong. And I think that's a very different situation than we're in now where there's so much discussion now. There's, you know, there's so many organisations. That sense of sort of being, being kind of, feeling like it's only you. I don't think anyone really can have that anymore. But at that stage, it really did. And I think it was for certainly, you know, there'd been all that work in the late 80s and early 90s around feminism and architecture, all that theory. And it just kind of, you know, as Naomi said, it just sort of evaporated. And I remember I was editor of Architecture Australia in the mid 2000s. I wrote an editorial saying what happened to feminism. And, and it was, it was like, we were all kind of still living our lives as if we were feminists, but there was, certainly wasn't any public discussion. And I think it was quite exciting as, you know, we saw all these other... I mean, so there was a, there's an organisation in New Zealand that started in 2011, so that started just before us. Architects, I think, started just slightly before us. We ran a, a conference in 2012 and we were looking for speakers and we came across architects. So there was really a sense in 2012 that just all this stuff was starting to happen. The campaign around, um, you know, the Pritzker, was, I can't remember when that was, similar time. So there was just this huge sort of flourishing of activity. And I think that was also quite exciting. So we were getting lots of feedback from individuals, but we were also getting, you know, feeling this sense that there was all this stuff going on around the, certainly around the English speaking world. I was just gonna say, if you were, if you were looking for kind of like key moments, there is a key moment, which was probably less the moment where we thought that actually this thing might have legs and more the moment where we entered the mainstream. <laughs> what was that moment? So Justine and I were invited to be keynotes at the Australian Institute of Architects National Conference, which that year, what year was that, Justine? Was that 2015? I don't remember. Anyway, and it's a big deal because, you know, architects come from all over the country to that conference and it's the Institute and blah, blah, blah. You know, let's say the establishment. And it was in Perth. And we went and we gave our, our keynote, which was very well received. We used that moment to launch the Parlour Guides to Equitable Practice, which are, you know, one of the main kind of tools we have produced, a resource for, towards greater equity in the profession. And the round of applause, oh, my God, it was deafening. I really feel like that particular moment was when even the mainstream, a whole lot of blokes and very powerful blokes in the room, you know, kind of were like, okay, then this is an issue and yes, we accept that good work is being done here. It was 2014, I just checked. So it was before we became, it was before we were an incorporated association. 
And I did curate one of the creative directors, as they're called, of the conference stood up and said, Paula's work makes me proud to be an architect. That's fabulous. I'm really interested in you talking there a little bit on touching on the role of data collection. You talked about the survey that you you carried out, and certainly that's something in Part W that we talk about a bit, the kind of the need to to record, to gather, to archive, to collect voices and and ideas and and that that has a very important role to overcome and address this issue of of lost women of you know the kind of the lost knowledge that that is happening and i wonder then i mean this is quite i suppose this is quite a big question but why that has been happening why we have been losing these voices why this work has taken so long to do and it's essential that you've been leading the way on doing it but what are the bar- what have been the barriers to this happening and why is it in some ways taken so long when I mean, you talked to Naomi about those sort of those lost years what are the barriers to voices having been valued recorded gathered given the same position as male counterparts within the profession that is a big question. <laughs> I wonder if I could take the first part first, which is the first part of your question, which is really about data and the role of data and the collection of voices that have been unheard, let's say, because we have found that to be absolutely crucial to collect evidence. And effectively what's, you know, as the project it's coming on for 10 years old now, and it turns out that the original research project has basically turned out to be just a precursor to the work that Parler now does. and But the research project at the same time was absolutely essential because it, it collected a body of evidence, for which we then used extensively and continue to use for evidence-based advocacy. And um, Justine and I have talked about this endlessly, but what's really interesting is that the evidence which turned out to be most important as a rhetorical tool was actually quantitative evidence. It wasn't stories, although... The stories are a very, very important counterpart to the numbers, but the numbers is what changed people's minds. So, sorry, I haven't exactly answered your question, but except to say that research, empirical research, interviews, focus groups, surveys, but also statistical analysis has been 100% central to the way in which we've been able to have an impact. Yep, and we need to acknowledge our colleague Jill who gathered took the data incredibly seriously, gathered a vast amount of it and was very, very, very rigorous in in analysing it. And she used census data, which is incredibly detailed and comprehensive. And, you know, we we the data graphics and visualisation were really important. But it meant that people couldn't say, oh, that's just your experience. You kind of faced with the very crude numbers. People just couldn't kind of say, oh, there's not a problem. And it was, and yeah. it, and it wasn't just. I mean, the surveys have been important. The survey that we did really informed a huge amount of what we we went on to do. But those those very solid and serious numbers were absolutely vital, and 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 they were re, it was very very rigorous. I mean, some there's a fair bit of use of numbers in advocacy that's not really very rigorous, and sometimes that undermines the cause rather than helping it but no I think that was that was incredibly important but it is the combination of things so there's you know 
there's no one answer to any of it. We need stories, we need numbers, we need advocacy. We need, you know, people being charming. We need people being angry. We need, you know, you kind of, you need all of that and you need it all to kind of work together. And look, one of the reasons, you know, there's lots of reasons we set up Parlour, but one of them was also that we became aware that there had been many reports on women in architecture, stretching back to the late 80s. And that all, you know, I know, I know people who worked on some of those. And they put a huge amount of energy in and they were funded by the Institute or, you know, they were enormous amounts of work. And then they'd get submitted and nothing would happen. And you read the recommendations and you think, well, these are all sensible and great. And if they'd been carried through, we might not have to be here. So we were also trying to create a very public demand for the work. And we were very lucky that we had the internet and social media. I mean, and look, institutional inertia is a very, very big thing. Practice inertia, the inertia of practice, um, but also, and I think one of the things that surprised us is at the start, I think we all would have said, you know, the kind of really overt sexism is a thing of the past, but actually, increasingly, the more stories one hears, the more one realises that that's not the case. I think we all have been quite shocked by the, well, I certainly am, and by the, the stories of young women too, which are things that you thought were long gone, continuing. Well, and, and also things like that. that were, let's say, cultural norms in architecture, which are actually illegal. Like, for example, the well, certainly in Australia they are, the idea that a woman might go and ha- have babies and be on maternity leave and whatever, and then the, the, the practice might just say, oh, well, sorry, your job kind of isn't really here anymore, which is actually illegal, but was very, very common. I mean, we hear that all the time, like, okay, well, now you've got a kid, we sort of don't really want you anymore and you can't come back to your job. It was a norm. I mean, I don't think it is as much anymore because I think people are more alert to the fact that it's actually against the law. But, I mean, how shocking is that? (laughs) That was only five years ago. That was common practice. I think it still happens, Amy. But I think a lot of these things that we thought were things of the past have become, you know, maybe we were, you know, secure in our own careers and assumed these things weren't happening anymore. I don't know, but this certainly... But well, look, there's also a lot of good stories. I mean, a lot of things are changing. I mean, just this morning, I saw an Instagram post from a practice saying, inspired by the work of Parler and others, we now got this, we want to job share and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the data has also showed us, Jill did some analysis more recently, which showed that the numbers of women becoming, the numbers of women becoming registered has absolutely skyrocketed. So, again, where women have been able to take things into their own hands, they have. So you can, numbers of women getting registered skyrocketed. Numbers of women over 40 leaving the profession had really dropped so that they were not, that was no longer higher as a proportion than men. So that, again, at both ends of the scale, lots of people taking things into their own hands. But I think what we would argue is that that only takes you so far. We need structural change. So... You know, but then yeah. we also need opportunities to hang out. So we run lovely events where people get to hang out together. I don't know. I mean, I really admire what you do, actually, because it's so much, it feels so much more focused. It's like, here's one campaign and we're going to do it. Naomi and I get very distracted by lots of things. <laughs> we try to do them all. <laughs> that That's incredibly lovely to hear from the outside because I think we, I think there's so much that we would would share around around this point of, of kind of multiplicity of that there's so much to do of wanting you talked about wanting to and and needing the 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 role of 
there being a need to be charming, to be angry, the work by academics, more of the work on the ground and the sort of more grassroots, then also needing to the importance and the value. And I think this came up about when when you were talking about kind of hitting the mainstream of having being the issues being recognized and acknowledged at quite a high kind of high level where the where the power sits, but also at the same time, wanting to be supportive of and enabling and be part of a much more grassroots movement. I think one of the challenges, I think that that the kind of the multiple tactics we find super challenging as a volunteer led group of, you know, where, where do you focus your energies in this huge sphere? And there is so much to do. It, it's really lovely hearing you say your work seems so focused because we don't always feel that to be the case. But I, th- I mean, we're, I suppose we're kind of relatively new and we are certainly going through a process of having run a first campaign, the, the campaign around the alternative list and drawing attention to the inequality within specifically the RIBA gold medal. But that was really, you know, a kind of an example of, as you've talked about, you know, that that same, that exact same issue of lack of equity within the, the awards sectors generally. And so, and we were, we similarly, I think, experienced, as as you've noted, have experienced a, a, a moment of putting something out and it getting traction and then going, oh, wow, this is, this is going somewhere. And then, then having, I mean, we're now sort of having the kind of follow-up discussions continuing from that and saying, well, well, what next? And actually the project, the project that we're kind of working on this autumn is about mapping and challenging the fact then that when you see so many, so many publications that talk about, you know, the go-to projects, you know, the top 10, top 10 buildings or top 10, you know, kind of practices to, you know, to go and visit or maps that indicate these are the projects to go and see that the work of women is utterly excluded and so that that's a kind of a next a next thing that we're going to be working on it's lovely to, to hear you saying there's a kind of a clarity to that whilst sort of behind the scenes you know we're kind of peddling something i'm sure you can totally you know you're, you're totally relating to kind of peddling away behind the scenes wanting to do so much and and things being limited as to you know just just how much you can do I'm really interested in you talking about the multiple groups. You said that now there are so many more groups who are working in this sphere internationally. And that's something I think about quite a lot about how we can all help one another and sort of have some com- common threads that could, 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 be, could be shared. And I wonder in terms of change that you still think is needed. I know there's, I know there's a lot in his change, change that is, that we still need to see happen. That could be another kind of three day conversation, but as as some top points, are there things that you might be particularly interested in seeing happening, uh, groups internationally sharing and connecting on issues that might be, that might be areas that could be co-worked on across activist and research groups or particular things that you that you that you are that are kind of 
in, in your mind at the moment that you think needs need to change and areas of change that you that you think are still necessary? I feel like I should have a bazillion things to say in response to that and my brain's gone slightly blank. So I'm hoping Naomi's gonna perk up and say something. I mean I, I do think there's a lot of opportunity to work together more more closely. You know, and I know Rosa set up the sort of that what was it called? I can't remember what it was called, that sort of website that tried to locate all these different groups. I mean, it was very heavily US focused, but that kind of didn't really go anywhere. Naomi and I've talked about having an international summit with all these groups for years now that we've, you know, now of course none of us are allowed to travel, but. Yeah, that's why we wanted to have the summit because because actually we wanted to answer that question, Zoe, or, or, or ask that question, you know, like what is it, how can we be stronger together? And how can we leverage our respective work in our respective countries to be to advance the cause, especially in places which might have less capacity to to do this kind of work for various reasons? But also, you know, we've got to try and get beyond the Anglophone world, for example. I mean, I know Justine's had contact from we've had contact with colleagues in Spain, and we know that there's a, you know very strong women architects in Iran, for example. That it, it, there's work in India, blah blah blah. You know, there's work going on around the world, but I. I really want to have this summit because I feel like we can be stronger together and especially being opportunistic as we are and leveraging the possibilities of research funding in particular. I mean, one of the reasons why we've been able to be successful in our project is we had quite a lot of money to begin with, like the kind of money that you never get for advocacy initiatives around gender for obvious reasons. You know, the structural problems that play out there as well, but you can get money for research and if you then turn that research to the purposes of advocacy, well, so be it. But, and I think that works on a global scale. Like you use the kind of oh, prejudices of the of your institutions against them, basically. And so, for instance, in Australia, there's a kind of cultural cringe, which regards things that are overseas as often better than things that are at home, which means that when you team up with international institutions for research projects, you've got a better chance of being successful. So... Do you see what I mean? Like there's actually ways of using the international networks for totally mercenary purposes. I'm really interested by that that sort of phrase there of research into advocacy and that relationship back and forth. I mean, how, how do you describe Parla? Do you describe it as, a, as an advocacy group? Because I've seen, I... Uh, particularly for with your guides to equitable practice, I've seen you as being brilliantly research grounded. But it's really interesting hearing that that note there, Naomi, of that sort of segue back and forth from from, from research into advocacy. And then I suppose I wonder how much you see um, see activism as playing a part within your work. We tend to describe ourselves as a research-based advocacy organisation and I guess we would talk about a lot of what we try to do is kind of research into action. I mean, the, the research funding is finished, so we still try to part, be involved in research projects, but mostly it's now a kind of action advocacy sort of editorial project, although Naomi is, you should ask Naomi about her next research project, which she's just currently work, developed, launched, which I'm and we are involved with as well. But I think that that, yeah, that's really solid work by Jill. The fact that, yeah, as Naomi says, the money, which paid for everything except me, um, 
really kind of was absolutely essential. I think if we'd just started out of nothing, it would have been really hard. And the other thing that we should say is that we're no longer a volunteer organisation. So I'm paid for my work on Parla, some of it. My colleagues are too, and none of us work full time on it. But if, like, we couldn't keep going if it was all just being done in our spare time. It's just, I mean, I when the, when we wrote those guides, I just basically stopped earning any income for months, you know, four months or something on end, and that you know that can only go on for so long. So we actually really try to pay people for their work now, which, you know, on the other hand, we've got these people saying they want to volunteer and and and. And I don't know how to run a volunteer. <laughs> like, oh God, I don't want to spend all my time managing volunteers. So that's something we need to sort of work through as well, I guess. Yeah. I guess, I mean, I, I always feel slightly awkward when I talk about how, you know, all the money that we had at the beginning, because I mean, it is, it's an important fact and, you know, we don't want to hide it. And it was research funding and it was used for research purposes. But the reason I say it is because I think that other organisations internationally should try and do the same thing if they can. Because there is money for research, you know, and there is a place for research in the pro- this project that we're all doing. It's very, very helpful for the kinds of ends that we are trying to achieve. Hmm. I think it's super important to be talking about the finances of it, the money, because, and and it's something that we're definitely thinking about now and wanting to come back in the autumn. I mean, we're taking a little bit of a kind of a summer pause because everyone's exhausted. And so needing to take, you know, everyone needing to take a month to just ponder and chew things over and look, you know, look back and look forward. I think I think those kind of moments of pause are super super important and, and healthy. But on that on that point about money, it's certainly something that we're really keen to be talking about much more so that we are opening up the discussion, but also the awareness about the unpaid labor that is expected and assumed around making change and working within the sphere of equity and the really biting problems that that then brings around that then resulting potentially in, if, if we're not careful, in activism becoming a luxury that only a certain social echelon of, you know, possibly of women can afford. So all of the voices that then we're missing out. And also of the irony that we at Part W, we're not willing, and we find we say this a lot, to organizations who will come to us and say, well, could you, know, could you give a talk, run a workshop? And we'll say, and, and yes, what are the fees? And they'll say, oh, it's, it's it, you know, there, there's no money involved, but we think it'll be really good profile for you. And then having to, you know, then having to, to, to kind of, I mean, we almost have sort of standard replies now of so much of what we're doing is about valuing the work of women. If we are, you know, we have to be that change. And I find that needing to educate others about value, quite a frustrating process and having to point out you are in what you have asked of us, you are undervaluing, you are undervaluing us and you are actually working against the very issue that you claim to be trying to change. And that, that I, in personally, I find that quite, I find that quite frustrating because I feel 
can we not get beyond this point? You know, can we not recognize, you know, that work, you know, the work of women needs to be paid? I wonder what your what some of your frustrations at the moment might be. I mean, for me, that's a real bugbear and it's a barrier. What, what are there particular hot points that are frustrating, causing you challenge at the moment? Mm. I mean, I think in some ways we're in a slightly different situation with, I mean, I've got to say, whenever I'm asked to give a talk now, like personally, my, my first question is what's the fee? Because I've spent my life being asked to talk for you know, no money. For Parlour, we do tend to just, well, because my, you know, many of my colleagues are academics in relatively well-funded positions and those public talks is kind of part of the deal. And my time on Parlour for other work is, is covered, so I don't. So we don't tend to say what's the fee for giving a talk, although we are thinking that as we become a membership organisation, the practices might have, want us to go and talk to them might have to be members before we turn up as part of a benefit. So that's, it's, but I, I mean, I completely agree, <laughs> but because it, it's, it just works a little bit differently in our organisation, I think. What's annoying me? That ain't me what usually annoys us. Well, not a lot, actually. I mean, I don't know. Maybe we seem very complacent, but I mean, we were asked a really good question, actually. This is a bit of a swerve from your question. But when Justine and I were speaking at the conference that Justine most recently organised at the University of Melbourne, Transformations, Someone said to us, a woman said to us, how do you cope? I can't remember the exact wording. What do we do with anger? And maybe it relates to your earlier question about activism, Zoe. It was a really good question. I've been thinking about it ever since because I suppose sometimes we seem like the, as we have said before, like the friendly feminists of Australian architecture, you know, not too scary, not going to throw too many stones. And I guess in some ways, I suppose a criticism of us might be that we were kind of like in bed with the big establishment organisations, the big institutions, the large practices, and kind of, you know, following a kind of equity and inclusion agenda, which also has been critiqued, of course, as being corporatized, blah, blah, blah. But that question of anger is a really, really important one because we also do get angry, of course, because it's outrageous. The situation is totally outrageous. And, I mean, we've seen many women, especially kind of older women, who've had to endure this for their whole careers. They're absolutely furious and delivered with rage, really, and they have every reason to be. But I suppose we've, we've tried to temper that, as Justine said before, with, you know, charm and amenability so that we can get through the door in, in order to then um, be most effective. I think there is a danger, and that is that it becomes, if you're, it becomes, we've talked a lot about the question of tone. And, and our colleague, former colleague, Karen, talked a lot about this as well, because being the angry woman just often really doesn't get you very far at all. But sometimes it gets you a really long way, and so you have to be really judicious. But I do think that it makes some of the much more difficult question conversations around things like harassment very, very hard to have. So, yeah, I think we just, we've, I've been thinking a lot about that conversation too, Naomi, and I, I think the thing is too, if... if I think it's partly what we do. Like we do the stuff which is, you know, the stats and all the stuff which is infuriating. But we also run lovely events where people get together and tell great stories to each other and have a good time. And I feel like that's actually, I kind of really need that or else I would, you know, fall apart. Mm. And I think people do need that too. But it is that balance. I mean, I, some, I mean, some other, I mean, I was talking to Laurie 
Laurie Brown from Architects the other day and she was talking about something. She said, oh, it's all, I find that all a bit too soft. And I think some of the stuff promoting women is a bit sort of lovely. Um, and, and I yeah. suppose we're interested in a little bit more edge than that, but nor do we see it. It's, you know, I think we also, we're kind of old. Like, I'm, Naomi's not as old as me, but, you know, I was the editor of Architecture Australia. Naomi's professor and head of, was prof his professor and was head of school at Monash. Our colleague Julie was a dean at Melbourne Uni. Like, actually, we're pretty entrenched, and that's why we could be effective when we started up. We, people would take our phone calls. I could call favours in from people that I'd, you know, done lots of work with for years. We can't be the angry 22-year-olds because that's not who we are. Like, they're 22 years. We need the angry 22-year-olds, and we can help give them a platform. But that's not, you know, <laughs> just, I think you've got to use the, as to use Naomi's word, the leverage. You've got to use the agency and leverage that you have. And I think you also just have to use your personality. And I'm a giggler, and I'm never not going to be a giggler. Um, and I think the fact that I'm a giggler and then sometimes I'm quite angry and I shake my finger at people makes it, you know, it kind of makes it work. You know, Naomi's eyebrow action, I think, has got us a very long way. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, the secret, the secret to parlour, some brilliant eyebrows and a fantastic giggle. Um, I really, I'm really, really interested in the, in in that comment about tone, and it's something certainly we we also talk about a lot um, in in part W, and that we have certainly been challenged by some saying you're being too soft and squidgy, you're being too too nice, and if you're going to be in this sphere, you're going to have to have a much thicker skin and be more punchy. I think the counter to that that I find really essential is but then well two things firstly if we're always operating in a very high energy possibly quite angry and forceful way we're going to tire ourselves out and that's something we really need to be cognizant of of our own energies and we need to as a collective we need to want to come to this table not be exhausted by it but see this as a a, a positive table to be sitting around together having these conversations and that requires positivity there's that which is about us looking after ourselves and then the other thing which maybe I'd be interested in hearing you're talking about more if you're willing is I feel then the potential risk that if one operates in ways that are consistently associated with macho type behaviors then we are not making the ch change that we want to see. We're actually being part of a, a direction or a narrative that proposes that to get ahead, to make progress, that you have to be part of a trajectory that has tendencies of being about suppression and repression rather than working with and embracing approaches that might tend to be more feminine. I wonder if that's if that that's something that strikes a chord with with yourselves. Mm. I think well, I think the thing is too that anger is read differently, or being forthright or whatever is read differently in women than it is in men. We might think that's that's rubbish, but it's how it is. And so the behaviours that might be interpreted as being you know all that stuff around leadership, you know. We might not want them to be gendered, but the way they are received is gendered. So, yeah, I, 
I'm, I'm really wary of saying, you know, I mean, look, you can have awful women and you can have lovely men. I'm very wary of trying to set up those, you know, say women are nurturing, blah, blah. I just, you know, but I just don't think it's very productive. I think, look, we, you know, we want change in big practice as much as everywhere else. And, and you're not going to get that if you start hammering, you know, bashing people up. I mean, I think the thing is also, I think the thing about, mostly being you know having this sort of aura of reasonableness or whatever is that when you do call things out Mm. it really if you're just angry all the time everyone just goes oh that's just those women over there you know being angry Mm. so I think it's about using anger or you know being direct or whatever it is in a way that gets cut through when you really need it. And I suppose if I think about you say, well, things are irritating me. I mean, one of the things that irritates me is the inertia of institutions. And so, you know, I don't know if we should say this, but, you know, the Institute of Architects has had a gender equity policy for a long time now, which was thanks to Naomi and me, but mostly Naomi. It's a good policy. There's a committee set up to deliver on it, but it gets, you know, it's used in fits and starts and it really still is depending on the individual's in place using it for good or ignoring it. And I think that's the thing when you think there's change and then the personnel change and you it's as if nothing happened. I find that really frustrating. Yeah. Might just talk quickly about that activism question. The active, and I think we would often describe what we do as advocacy more than activism. Yeah, I don't feel like, I often feel that activism is a sort of honorific term. I don't, I'm not sure that, you know, that speaking for myself that I deserve it you know do you know what I mean like I think if you're a committed activist then you you've dedicated your life to it and you've also dedicated your life to being an outsider and I don't think I mean Parler tries to straddle the tries to be on both sides judiciously tries to be outsider and insider whereas activism implies a militancy and a commitment I mean of course we're totally committed but yeah, I didn't. I wouldn't use that word. I wouldn't dare to use that word. <laughs> also, I think advocacy is is often is also the idea that you're advocating on behalf of others, where, which I think is really important. So I think mm. although we would have, yeah, again, I feel like we're probably not strident enough to be called to call ourselves activists. I know some of our colleagues would like to call themselves activists, but we are. Look, we are. We are on the inside as well, and I don't think we can pretend we're not. I mean, we're, although every now and then I find myself on the outside, and I go, oh, that's right, I'm not really on the inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's very, but I think we have used that very judiciously. As Justine said, it was, we've always kind of used that, you know, like I've had these kind of powerful roles in academia, but at the same time I've always been an outsider, and as a, also as a critic, I'm an architect critic as well. You're always an outsider as a critic. Like no one really trusts you or likes you even because they never know what you're going to say. So I think using that outsider position to its best effect is something that we've managed to do a little bit, but we're not as outside as the as the activists. And, and we've tried very hard. I mean, I, I suppose, you know, again, I'm an editor. I just think independence is absolutely fundamental. So, so we, you know, we have a mix of partners. We have a mix of sponsors. We're not beholden to any of them. And in fact, one of the reasons for for heading in the membership, or one of the reasons for crowdfunding in the first place and now heading in the membership direction is that dispersed responsibility so that we can't, 
I think if when you start to feel too cozy and comfortable, that's when you kind of have to change something. Certainly, you know, that's why I left my job as an editor of Architecture Australia because it all just felt a bit too cozy. I felt like I'd lost my outsideriness. So I think that's probably something we need to keep an eye on, actually. But but I think yeah, it's just that sort of you know playing that balances. I'm a, I'm a New Zealander. I'm not Australian anyway, so I'm always an outsider here. But I think it's really important that to to play that balance to be to be inside enough that you can have a voice and to be yeah I mean I think the other thing going back I think something you said before Zoe made me think you know one of the criticisms that I get from my partner quite often is that if all parlor does is make it more comfortable for middle class women then it's just you know you're just actually contributing to the problem you just you know he will often point out to me that some of the people who gain extra success on the back of our work are already very privileged. And I think that's also something to be very mindful of all the time. And I think, as you said, if you're not paid for your work or your time, then it just becomes something you can do as a dilettante. Or, as my academic colleagues, it's their kind of community service part of their academic work, which is great, it's fine. But for those of us who don't have on, you know, salaries... I think that's it's, it's absolutely important. And I think the other thing is the reason we're not all burnt out and exhausted is because, you know, because we have got some funding to be able to do things. We can pay a graphic designer. We can pay the web developers. We can pay research assistants. And I think, I think there's, you know, there are so many cycles of advocacy groups and activist groups that just run out, just, just run out of energy and exhaustion because there's so-called passion projects. I hate it when you go, what's your passion? It drives me nuts. <laughs> you know, it's kind of... So, so in some ways, I think just being a little bit more, and I mean, I'm nervous about the whole membership thing. It just seems terrifying. You know, we're going to have to, I was talking to a colleague this morning, going, oh my God, we're going to have to manage people so much more. But it feels like either, you know, we kind of have, we've just been professionalizing more and more. And I think we, you know, we kind of are, we've sort of turned ourselves into this thing and we kind of have to own it. Mm. Yeah. That, that. That very, very much, uh, very much strikes a chord. I think for for myself, and I think for probably the lead conveners within Part W of that, of getting to that point where it almost becomes inevitable and necessary, even though it will throw up a whole nother set of challenges. And, so how do you how do you manage? Your, you've got a lot big kind of volunteer base, haven't you? How do you how do you manage? Um, we no, we don't actually. We are we have a well we have a, a kind of a core steering group of of around 10 to 12 of us and it's and it's around because invariably and I think it, it's positive that people that, that there's a certain kind of fluidity to people coming and going according to what they're able to give uh, and and where they're where they're at Someone, I found it quite interesting that in a talk that we gave the Design Museum earlier this year, someone commented on the fact that Part W is quite nebulous and you can never quite tell exactly who it is and that that that's actually something that is quite, we're conscious of in a positive way so that there is this sort of fluidity. It also means very similarly to, as, as you were saying, Justine, that there's the opportunity to be able to call on some really powerful figures who maybe aren't in Part W meetings kind of week in or month month in, month out, but who are uh, campaigning colleagues and friends and supporters, which means that actually we have a lot of strength 
through our network. And you know, if you have 10 incredible intergenerational women working across the built environment, because that's also something that, that I suppose is, is a little bit different is that we are, yes, a number of us are architects, but also engineers and transport designers and sustainability experts and journalists working within the design design sphere. So we that was something that when I first convened the discussion group, that was really important to me that that we not be just architecture because then I felt, well, I'm just going to be in another silo, which is a silo which I'm already in much of my, you know, much of my day. And so that that means I think that we kind of are able to broaden out our reach, but also our contact list. Because if you have, you know, an amazing, you know, call, call it 10 for basic, you know, basic maths. If you have a brilliant 10 group, you know, group of 10 minds who then have you know, 10 more contacts across the industry, that that really, really strengthens our reach. And I think that possibly, I think that networkedness maybe makes us look a bit bigger than we perhaps really are. We do have quite a lot of people hammering at the door saying, can I be a volunteer? And at the moment, we're sort of trying to work out, well, what exactly do people volunteer on and to break things into working groups so that we can have project specific teams. And that's really something we've started to, to establish this year. So for example, that mapping project that I mentioned earlier, that that can be run by a project team and that that then means that other volunteers can get involved in that project you know which has certain goals and a time scale to it and I think that's the way that we want to go more so that we are enabling others to join in but by having parameters because I think it's you know it's quite challenging actually to sort of throw people in at the deep end and we wouldn't really want to do that so saying well you know here's a particular project this is the you know this is the these are the aims this uh, you know these are the people who are well, this is the work that has been done so far and now to work on to get involved in that project with with some goals established already that people can then jump in on I'd be very interested to talk to you a bit more about that, you know, another time maybe because working groups is exactly the term I've been using. We try to do far too much and so often I'm the one who's blocking it because I just haven't got to something yet. You might also want to talk to Linda Simmons who set up Architecture Women New Zealand. They have a very um, they have a very good working group model, although I think sometimes she just finds herself picking up all the pieces because the problems with volunteers is, people, you know, people don't always necessarily do what they want to do, but... They have this, I think they have monthly meetings and people come along and it all gets divided up and, you know, they've, they've really taken that route very effectively, I think. Quite different to ours. Thanks for listening to 29% Equal in conversation with Part W. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. This podcast has been created with thanks to the RIBA Research Fund and supported by Katie Lloyd-Thomas of Newcastle University. Please subscribe to stay updated.